How is everyone today? How are you? You look good. You look great. You do? Those of you online, you're in your pajamas or whatever. You look good too, I'm sure. Uh, we welcome you. We're glad to have you here today. And we're in a series called Unlocked. And what's so encouraging about Jesus is he's always trying to help you. You know that? That's what he's always doing. And Jesus is always for you. So he's not only trying to help you, but when I remember that he's always for me, I, I can lean in just a little bit more, a little, a little bit better. And so we've taken some different topics about money and resources because Jesus actually talks more about money than any other topic in the entire Bible. And you have to realize why. Why, why would, if I was talking to you one-on-one, what, what do you think the answer is for that? Why do you think Jesus talks more about money than any other subject? The answer is, we need what? We need help. Because some of us do a really good job with some parts of money, but maybe not as good jobs with other parts of money. And so what's so interesting about Jesus is he won't leave you where you are. He has more. He always has more in store for you. So let's just be real honest. When Jesus says these stories, they're provocative. I think these stories of Jesus are extremely provocative. The things that Jesus says to different people, I'm going, I'm not sure as a preacher I could get away with that. But Jesus is so provocative. And the reason is he wants to move people where they are to where they could be. So if you're all knotted up already about money, this probably won't work this morning. If you just push delete, you know, and I just went into cyberspace, okay, bye. But I don't want you to push delete. I want you to stay with us because he wants to help you. But let's just be honest. Some of you think about money way too much. Some of you don't think about money enough. Some of you have honed some great skills with money and resources, and some of you have just kind of ignored it. Some of you are very generous. You're just a generous person. Some of you are just hoarding, and you're very greedy. I think I've offended everybody by now, but if I haven't, I'll keep going, okay? I'm sure I can offend everybody in the next five or six minutes. And the point is, Jesus says some very offensive things. And so why does he do that? Well, every one of these stories of Jesus has basically one point. Now, we started a few weeks ago with the story of the rich farmer. And the story of the rich farmer is a case study on how to run a business. The story of the rich farmer, you want to run a successful business? You look at the 14 things the rich farmer did right. The day after, I thought of a 15th one on, the, on Monday, and the 15th one that's not in that sermon is he was able to make a decision. He wasn't, paral he wasn't in a state of paralysis by information. But the story of the rich farmer, if you want to know how to run something or start something, he is successful. He will tell you what to do. Unfortunately, Jesus says, he wasn't rich toward God, which was like the most important thing. But all 14 or 15 of those points, he was brilliant. Then you come to the story of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, again, has done a lot of things right with money. He wouldn't be rich if he didn't know how to manage his business or manage his, you know, the farm or whatever it was. And so he does a lot of things right. 
But, but Jesus knows that he had an idol. And Jesus knows that money was an idol. And Jesus knows that money's not a tool to this rich young ruler. He knows it's his God. And Jesus won't allow money to be his God. And so he has this dialogue with Jesus, and he kind of stirs it all up with Jesus. And Jesus says, look, if you want to be perfect, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He's like, there's no way I'm going to do that because I'm rich. And we're going, well, does Jesus want us all to give all of our money away? No, he doesn't. But he's saying to this guy, you're going to have a real struggle for the rest of your life. You're locked up. You're not unlocked. And then Jesus tells these stories about the parable of the talents. It might be one of my favorites, actually. And in a newer modern translation, instead of the parable of five talents, two talents, and one talent, they use bags of gold. And so one guy had five bags of gold, and Jesus said to him, you know, because he made five more, well done. He says to the guy who had two bags of gold, who got two more bags, he said, well done. But then Jesus says to the guy who had one bag of gold and hit it in the ground, he said, you wicked, lazy servant. That's Jesus. That's provocative. Does that sound like Jesus to you? That here's a guy who hid what God had in store for him in the ground and never used it. And Jesus said, well, I'm just going to be honest with you. You're, You're lazy and you're wicked. And then we come to the story of Zacchaeus. That, that, too, is a phenomenal story because you have to understand Zacchaeus was a traitor and Zacchaeus was a spy and Zacchaeus was cheating everybody out of everything. And so Zacchaeus made his money by working for the Roman government and Zacchaeus made his money by, by stealing money from everybody that he possibly could. And so he's in a sycamore tree because he's, he's miserable. He's rich, bling, 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 got the big house, but he's miserable. And so he, he wants to see Jesus because maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe this guy's got something to say. And so Jesus comes to his house and Jesus shares, you know, the whole story. And, 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 and Zacchaeus says, man, I get it now. I'm loved by God. God actually loves me. I, I can be loved by God. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give away half of my wealth to the poor. I'm going to help the poor. Didn't make Zacchaeus poor. He still had a lot left over. But I'm going to give away half. And, G- and he said, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I- I'll pay back fourfold as much. So it's, it's like if he comes to your house and he's knocking on your door, and the last time he was there, he took $1,000 and you open the door, you just know Zacchaeus is coming to steal more money from you. And yet Zacchaeus doesn't steal money. He gives you a bag now worth $4,000, and you are shocked that this greedy little tax collector is now paying back fourfold. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. What a story. What a story. Jesus is provocative, and he responds differently to everyone. So let me ask this question. Where are you with money? Where are you with money? Is it your God? Is it your idol? Does this story lock you up? Are you knotted up? Are you afraid that you won't have enough? Are you, are, do you live in fear? Do you ignore it? Do you just pretend like if I don't pay attention, it'll all just like go away? Jesus speaks 2,352 verses on money. 
There's 500 on prayer. He's making a statement, isn't he? So in Luke chapter 18, he tells another story. Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now don't read over this, because I think we all do this. I think we all talk about people too much. I think we all are quick to judge other people. We're quick to make ourselves the hero of every story. I said, you know, you listen to some people, they're the bride at every wedding, they're the corpse at every funeral, okay? You got to be careful with this because I think I need to repent from this probably every single day. So Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So a Pharisee was a religious guy and he should be the hero of the story. And the tax collector was the spy. So he should be, you know, the, the crook of the story. The Pharisee stood by himself. You ever notice this? Self-righteous people always stand alone. Self-righteous people are always in their own camp. So he stood alone and he prayed, God, I thank you. Now look, when he prayed, it wasn't like, you know, God, I thank you. God, he wants everybody to see it. God, I thank you. Everybody's paying attention. I'm not like other people, God. I am a great man. I'm a righteous man. I'm I'm not like these robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I'm not even like this this tax collector over here. This is Jesus. And the Pharisee said, let me tell you how righteous I am. I do everything right. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. That's good. You should fast. You should be a tither. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't think he was I just think he was overwhelmed because he went into the temple recognizing that he is lost as can be. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's such a story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, It's such a story that no matter what you've said, what you've done, how many mistakes you've made, how many bad thoughts you've had, how many times you've betrayed somebody, how many times you've, no matter what, it's such a testimony to Christ that Christ is saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come and accept my blood. Come and accept my lifestyle. It's, It's an incredible story that the one you would think would go home justified, went home unjustified. And the one that you would thought would never qualify for justification went home justified. That's Jesus. That's the story of Jesus. And yet the story ends there. But what happens next? And what I'd like to do for a couple minutes today is to talk about something that needs to happen next in your life and in my life. Permit me to get in your grill for just a couple minutes. Will you you do that? Because I'm coming in. I'm coming in your grill. I'm coming in your kitchen, your lanai, your living room. I'm not coming in your bathroom, but I'm coming in your house. I'm coming in. Permit me to get in your grill 
for just a couple of minutes. You see, we, we like this story, and it's a good story, because for whatever reason, this tax collector had been fighting against God. Now, we don't know what he was doing, but he was fighting against the things of God, just like a lot of people in this room have and a lot of people in this world are, fighting against the things that God has in store for you. And he has a moment. He has that prodigal son moment where he comes to his senses and his heart melts, and now he surrenders, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he has that moment in his life, and he comes to Christ. What's next? What happens after this story? And you see, in the church, we're really concerned about getting people to Christ, and we are. And we're really concerned about getting people baptized, and we are. And you coming to Christ is your personal relationship, and you getting baptized is your public declaration, that statement, and we're concerned about both of those. What's next? And so most of the time, we like say, this is like the end of the journey. Will you permit me? This is not the end of the journey. This is where the journey begins. This is where the story starts. And so, so again, you have maybe for a while, a long time, a little bit of time, you've been fighting against God. You're grabbing power. You want to drink. You want to party. You want to fornicate. You want to get all the toys you possibly can. You want to do everything you possibly can. And you're fighting God. You're fighting. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. You're resisting the prayers of your grandmother. You're resisting the talk, you know, of your dad. You're resisting. And at some point, at some point, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and your heart just melts. And at that point, we don't really do a great job in the church of telling you what's next. So I was sharing this with our teaching pastors a couple weeks ago, and we're going to do a whole series on this next year. I don't know when yet in 2022, but, but they said, oh, that's a series. We're going to do a whole series on, on what I'm getting ready to, to share with you next. You see, we've been fighting against God, and then we surrender to God, but what's next? What's next is fighting for God. It's just fighting, and we have to learn how to fight. You see, we surrender to Christ, but we don't surrender now to the things of God. We now fight with God for God, and we learn to fight. You must learn to fight. You must learn to put on the gloves. You must learn to use the tools. You must learn to how, how worship is a weapon. You must learn because everything in your destiny is at stake. Everything in your spiritual destiny is absolutely at stake. And so you fight. You fight for your spiritual destiny. You fight for your destiny. You fight for your health. You fight for your wealth. You fight for your children. You fight for your grandchildren. You fight for the next 500 years of your life. You fight for your marriage like you've never fought before. We learn how to fight. And that's the whole point now of what happens. And we don't know what happened to the tax collector after the story. Because the story ends. Because Jesus is not talking about what you do next. But what you do next is now throughout the entire rest of the Bible. If you'll notice, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Romans, Colossians, all those books of the Bible are now teaching you how to fight. 
All the rest of the books in the New Testament are written to churches and to Christians teaching you how to have a spiritual destiny. Satan's teeth have been kicked out, but he still has a mouth. And he's still whispering, he's still lying, he's still deceiving, and he still comes to you to steal, kill, and to destroy. If you can understand that every day of your life, you have an enemy who wants to snuff out your life physically. Every day of your life, you have an enemy who wants to snuff out your family. He doesn't like your kids. He doesn't like your grandkids. He doesn't like anything about the things that he sees. And so we have an enemy who is trying to cause and create all kinds of confusion. Have you learned to fight with the scriptures? Have you learned to fight with worship? Have you learned to fight in prayer? Well, just think about what you do. How much time do you spend fighting for the spiritual destiny of your faith, your family, your finances, your friends, your health, everything that's absolutely essential in your life. I've got two wonderful families up here that are going to help us with this practical application on fighting. And both families have gone through some pretty traumatic situations. Uh, One family, uh, there was infertility, the inability to have natural children. And the other family was diagnosed just about a little while ago with a year ago with stage four breast cancer. And yet, so let me start with the green. This is Tim and Tricia. So Tim, I'm assuming that you surrendered at an early age or somewhere. You grew up as a good Baptist boy, I think, okay? So I'm assuming you heard the gospel message and you responded, but did you learn to fight? And when did you learn to fight? Yeah, I, was, I became a Christian at a, at a pretty early age, probably middle school, and, and Tricia was in a similar time frame uh, probably to that. Uh, but I don't think I started to really understand and grasp this idea of lordship and fighting for what God wants Uh, until about our fifth year of marriage together. So I I think I was afraid. I think I was afraid of this idea, this connotation that lordship means he's going to make me do something I don't want to do. Uh, So we were doing good things. We were doing right things. We're going to church. We're doing all of that. But we were living a lifestyle of, uh, Lord, this is what we're going to do. Please bless it. And that was the way we were living, that we were doing things and asking him to bless what our idea was, what we were doing. So about our fifth year of marriage, we've got cars, we've got house, a house, we're doing well career-wise, all of that stuff, uh, and we decided, it, well, I guess it's time for kids. Uh, we need to round all this out, and we need to, to add some kids to this mix. Um, and to fast forward about three years later, it wasn't happening. We'd gone through procedures, we'd gone through a lot of prayer, a lot of crying together, a lot of all of that, and it just wasn't happening. And I distinctly remember, just like it was yesterday, even though it was 30 plus years ago, I uh, distinctly remember getting, getting together with Tricia, getting down on our knees, and probably for the first time, sincerely praying, God, we want what you want. We'd said that a lot of times, but I think this was the first time probably in my life that I meant that. I'd had enough. I was done Father, we've done all this stuff. We've tried it our way. It's, it's time for us to back out, surrender, and give this to you. And if you want us to have kids, that's your thing. Great. If you don't want us to have kids, help us to be okay with that. 
uh, but it's, it's time for you to take this over and be Lord uh, of this situation. Um, and, and again, I, I think lordship has this bad connotation, but what we began to learn for the first time, and we've continued to learn it, it's a process, uh, to this point, is the joy and the peace and the contentment and the protection that God gives you if you're under his lordship. And I think you have to experience it. You can talk about it all you want, but that's the first time we experienced it. And the, the second thing is that we really experienced uh, Romans 8:28. It's a verse we all know, but we all talk about the first half and not the second half. And the first half is uh, God makes all things work for good, but then there's kind of a comma for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And that little second bit, love him called according to his purpose, I think is falling into the, the lordship piece and fighting for what he wants, uh, his purpose, and loving him for his purpose instead of what my purpose is. So I think that was kind of a defining point for both of us. It was. And I do remember that time when we both realized that God is in control. And we say that, but we don't live like that. And we, at that point, we're not really living knowing God was in control. And with that verse, Romans 8, 28, I knew that was true, but this was the first time I had to really understand that I had to fight for it to be true. I, it was some, it kind of caught me off guard. Um, going through the journey of infertility and the procedures and I mean, it's, it's a simple thing to want to have children. And, it's, and I remember talking to God, God, this is, you created us for this. You know, you wanted us to have, to, you want us to have children. That's the, one of the reasons you created man and woman. So I remember lies starting to come in into my mind about, well, maybe I've done something wrong and I don't deserve kids and I'm not good enough for kids. And those were starting to take hold in my heart and in my mind and trying to believe Romans 8:28, all things work together for good. It was a battle to fight that that was really true. It's like, cause I was asking God, so where's the good in this? And I remember the time when we did surrender, you know, to his Lordship and God, you are in control. I have nothing to do with this. I cannot make this happen. Obviously, I can't. We've tried. We tried it our way, and, we, and it hasn't happened yet. So you, you are in control. I, we got it. And I, re, I remember that time, and I remember him giving me this verse, Psalm 46.10. It says, be still and know that I am God. And there's a different translation that starts it with, stop striving and know that I am God. And he just spoke to me in that, that it, it wasn't about me doing things and asking for him to guide us and help us. Yes, we do that. But he wanted more than that. He wanted me to just be content in his presence, to be content with him and not be trying to do things, but to be content with him and to, there was a change in my heart to wanting what he wants and wanting his desires, not just my own. Yes, I desired kids, but God, if you don't desire that for us, then take that desire away. And I, that was a hard thing to pray. And I remember fighting to pray that. 
you know, just fighting to really mean it when I said it, that if you really don't want us, if that's not your plan for us, then okay, we're, we're going to let that go. Take that desire away. And the funny thing is he didn't, he didn't take the desire away. And so it's okay, God, what, what's, what are you doing? You haven't taken that away. We're still struggling in this, but he just changed the path for us. So he, he took us off the path of having children biologically to adoption. And so when we you know, started down that path, that's where we landed. And we, are, we have two girls today, and they were both adopted. And that was his plan for us. But it took us surrendering and recognizing, God, you're in control. We're not. We don't want to be. We want to do things your way. And I want my desires to be yours so that when I pray, I'm praying what you want to. I, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that story. I can't imagine how difficult this was. I can't imagine the, the, the crying yourself to sleep. I can't imagine the pain that you went through. It was the monthly trying and uh, one, one more time. It didn't work this month. And it was just constant. Every month. Every month is getting the bad news that, nope, it didn't work again. And not knowing why. That was the hard, too. But the reason I wanted them to share their story is that tears marriages apart. They fought together. And that's what the power of, of Christ can do. That's what the power of the gospel will do. It will keep you together and keep you strong. I got four amazing grandchildren as well. Diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. My goodness. Graham, why don't you start off? Tell us your story because you're you're just about. Has it been a year almost now? Yeah, just about. Um, much like Tim and Tricia, Nina and I both surrendered to the Lord at a young age, um, but our fight, so to speak, started October first, two thousand twenty. So we are five days shy of, of a year since Nina received the diagnosis of stage four breast cancer, um, and we felt all those emotions. Um, there was fear. There was anxiety. There was uh, lots of questioning. You know, if we're honest and vulnerable in this situation, yeah, it was it was really hard. It was really hard. Mm. But you fought. You fought for your health. You fought for your girls. Tell us, tell us how you fought. So, in the past, I had fought um, in writing. So I would write out all my prayers and plead with Jesus and read my Bible, but um, after that first month and the fear and anxiety um, in dealing with all of the diagnosis and doctor's appointments and all that and it came, um, I heard the Holy Spirit say, open your mouth. And I thought, okay, well, what does that mean? Um, and so what I came to realize was that he wanted me to to pray using his word back to him. And so um, in, in that time, my mom gave me this little booklet full of uh, healing scriptures. And every single day when I woke up, I started with, uh, Lord Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Sickness and disease have no power over me. I'm forgiven and free from sin and guilt. I am dead to sin and alive into righteousness. I prayed um, 1 Peter 2.24, by his stripes, I am healed. There was moments where the enemy would attack me with thoughts of death. And 
I would speak it right back to him and say, no, it is written I will live and not die and declare the works of God. And so I just spoke the word of God out and um, I'm a living testimony of his promises are true and he has completely healed me. So. So we have to surrender to Christ. But, but then we, we, learn, we learn how to fight. Did you pray together? I, I, I want to ask that question. Did, did you learn to pray together? We prayed individually, but we prayed a lot together. And, and one of the things that, that just still sticks out to me crystal clear uh, is we prayed without words times. We didn't know what to pray sometimes. And we would just hold each other, comfort each other. And uh, that the verse about uh, the Holy Spirit praying for us when you don't know what to pray, uh, that's such a comfort to me that, that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows his plan. And I remember praying that verse very specifically a number of times that we don't know what to pray for, but you know what we should be praying for, and we ask your intercession in that. Do you all pray together? We did, yeah. That really became uh, such a pivotal part of just our fight and the journey. And there were sort of two things that, that stuck out. One of them, you know, Nina alluded to praying and, and some different things in the morning, but Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 22 really tell us that um, we need to pay attention to the words of the Lord. Um, Let them penetrate deep into your heart for they bring life to those who find them and healing to their whole body. And so we really kind of took that and captured that, gosh, these scriptures are really what's bringing life and healing into her. And so we need to let them penetrate in our hearts and speak them. That's going to be what brings, you know, ultimate healing. But the second thing you know, that was huge for us. And I'm reminded of the story in Exodus 17 where Moses and the Israelites are in an actual war. They're in a battle. And Moses finds that as long as he has his arm raised with his staff in, in his hand, that they're winning the battle. But as he grows tired and grows weary, his arm begins to sink and the Israelites begin losing ground. Aaron and her show up and they hold his arm up and they prop him up. And really that was such an encouragement to me that we're not alone. We're not designed to go through these battles alone. We're not designed to fight alone. And we had uh, family, friends, community, our church that literally held us up in our weakness. And um, it was just a great uh, testimony for our need to have that, our need to have community and to not fight alone. So I... uh... I was two, two blocks from the Brooklyn Bridge when uh, 9-11 happened. I was uh, in New York City that morning, and it was a strange couple of days. I was there to go to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church on that Tuesday night, flew in on Sunday night, and my prayer partner, Mike Stafford, and I spent all day Monday looking and researching and going around and and then that Monday night, we went to the Yankees game, and then we went to an Italian restaurant afterwards. And it's like 1 o'clock in the morning when we got back to our hotel room. And um, the next morning, uh, we were going to Wall Street. We were going to ride the elevators all the way to the top of the Twin Towers. And we were going to go to um, the financial district. And that was one of our plans on Tuesday morning. So he said to me, what do you want to do? You want to get up early? I said, 
we're going to be out late Tuesday night. Let's sleep in. So we slept in. Things could have been a whole lot different. So we slept in and we wake up, get up, get out. You're under a terrorist attack. We open the blinds and there's the billowing smoke of the one tower. And um, we were forced out of our room. And it's kind of funny. I, uh, I asked the guy, and this is in my mind, Danita still says, why did you ask this question? But I asked the guy if I could get a shower. Because I'm thinking if I'm going to be out of my room all day, I at least want to be clean. She says, only I would think of that. But anyway, he says, I won't say what he said. The answer was no, okay? I won't use the words he used, but the answer was a very definitive no. And um, so I, it, was, it was mayhem. I can just remember it like it was yesterday. The women had taken off their pantyhose and wrapped them around their their faces as masks. Guys took off their ties. They're walking across the Brooklyn Ridge, wrapped them around their faces as a mask. There's a half inch of soot on every woman, every child, every suitcase, every briefcase, everything. Um, it, was, it was awful. The memories I have of jumping and of people getting run over by uh, emergency vehicles, I mean, it, it's right here. In, in my heart, in my mind. They turned our hotel into a Red Cross center. It's a big hotel, the, the, the Marriott. And my partner and I, Mike Stafford, were just shooting saline solution into the eyes of all the people that were now in the bottom of the hotel just to give them some comfort and relief. It's kind of cool that I was able to be a priest at that point in that moment. But there we were, and I watched Americans come together. I, I, we had a common enemy. There was a common enemy that we were fighting against. And we were united. I'm a boy from Indiana. The New Yorkers there, gosh, they got it done. The CVS or Walgreens, whatever it was, just gave us all kinds of water and, and saline solution and all kinds of supplies and we're just in that hotel room trying to comfort people and the people are crying and bawling. But America was united around a common enemy. We had an enemy that had come to seek and to steal and kill and to destroy us. And yet we were working together. That's how we fight. As Tim said, they, they prayed individually, but they also prayed together. And then others were, I'm sure, praying for them. I know hundreds of people have been praying for them. That's what we do. We come together as the church. And so our, our, our enemy is probably a lot different than what the mess has been the last year and a half. We've gotten ourselves in conversations and messes in the last year and a half that probably you don't even need to get into. Because you have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and to destroy you. And he's come to harm you and affect you. And so we, we, we love each other. We don't all agree on every topic. We don't agree on every issue. But we come together as a family. And you see, I, I care about your marriage. And you care about my marriage. I care about your kids. I care about you guys as kids. 
and you care about my kids and my sons-in-laws and my daughter-in-law and my three grandchildren. See, that's what church does. And, and I want to say this, and this may sound a little funny, but if a guy like me can learn to pray and fight with prayer, anybody and everybody in this room and online, you can learn it. I have learned to pray. I have learned it's a discipline, but you got to see the value of it. You have to see the value of taking back stolen property. You have to see the value of gaining ground. You have to see the power of the gospel, the power of scripture, the power of worship. When you're in a mess and you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do, you worship. You don't have any other answers, you worship. Worship is a weapon. And so what we've kind of done is we've been, you know, taught to surrender to Christ, which is absolutely step number one. But step number two is you fight. You fight in the morning. You fight in the evening. You fight all day long. You fight. Paul says, pray without ceasing. You learn to fight. Fighting's not watching three hours of Netflix. Fighting's taking the TV and turning it off, unless it's the culture that Buck's playing, but it, or, or, or the Rays. The Rays clinched it last night. How about that last night, huh? For those of you out of town, sorry, okay? But you learn to fight. And those are the priorities of your life, scripture and prayer and worship, the secret place, the meeting place. You, you learn to fight. So let me ask you this question. What's your greatest challenge right now? Is it health? Is it an addiction? There's all these books on scriptures, how to pray scripture, like what they were doing for health, for anxiety, for depression, for you just, you just bitterness, envy. There's all kind of verses to fight so that you will be different. What's your greatest challenge? Is it, is it wealth? Is it a supervisor? Is it, is it an employee? Is it making a decision? What, what's your greatest opportunity? Forget the problems for just a minute. What, what, what's your greatest opportunity? I started praying for Erica's spouse the day she was born. I started praying for Ethan's spouse the day he was born. I started praying for Emily's spouse the day she was born. I, I, I'm praying for the next three grandchildren and they've not even been conceived yet. Are you following me on this? This is how you fight. You fight with scripture, you fight with truth, you fight with the power of God. It's all available to you and to me. It's just how will you spend your time? How will you spend your energy? How, how will you fight? Some of you need to break family cycles. Some of you got some really messed up stuff in the rearview mirror. So you fight for the windshield. Okay? You fight. So the only way this message is really going to take hold is if you make some decisions this morning. What's, what's your greatest challenge? What's your greatest opportunity? And will you pray scripture? And will you worship? 
And will you fight over that? I can't wait for next week. Next week is the most provocative statement that Jesus Christ has ever made yet. I've already written a sermon. Come back. Click back online. I'm very stoked about next week because it took me 20 years to understand this passage that we're going to look at next week. It took me 20 years to get it. Um, we're going to pray over Nina right now. And we're just going to just pour. We're going to, go, we're going to fight. Will you stand and fight with me? Will you fight with me online? Online, will you just get on your knees if you can and just fight? And so Tim and Tricia, join us. I'm going to pray over you, and we're going to fight for you. We're going to fight for your health, okay? Your hair's come back. It's cute, curly. All right. All right. Heavenly Father, we as a family have a common enemy. And the common enemy wants to steal, kill, and to destroy Nina's life and Graham and Nina's legacy. They do not, we have an enemy that doesn't want this family to be strong, to be healthy, that has come to, to destroy her. In the name of Jesus, that ain't going to happen. In the name of Jesus, that's not going to happen. In the name of Jesus, that we forbid that, we, that will not happen. You have created 40 trillion cells inside of Nina. She has, she has seven octillion atoms inside of her. Every atom, every cell in her body be filled with light, the life, and the love of God. Every cell be healthy. Every cell be clean. Every cell be pure. Every organ in her body be healthy. Every gland in her body be healthy. Every system in her body be healthy. Lord, we, we pray for her immune system, her integumentary system. We pray for her lymphatic system. We pray for her endocrine system. We pray over her digestive system, reproductive system, circulatory and respiratory system. We pray for every system in her body, that there be healing and health in the name of Jesus we all pray. Amen. Amen.